I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, July 2nd, 2019. Coming up, we talk with solar physicist Dr. Craig DeForest about PUNCH, a new NASA mission he is leading to study the outer limits of the sun. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. We've all been hearing how the world is getting fatter. More than 500 million adults are now considered obese, a condition that generates a range of health issues. Surprisingly, little is known about how obesity affects neurological mechanisms that might control the eating behaviors that promote obesity. In a study published last week in the journal Science, an international team of researchers reported their studies in mice designed to investigate this issue. The scientists found that in mice, obesity itself shuts down the activity of a group of neurons in the hypothalamus. This is a brain region that regulates eating behavior. When its activity is reduced, the effect is to take the brakes off food intake. In their first study, one team of researchers identified differences in gene expression in the hypothalamus between lean mice fed on a normal diet and obese mice fed a high-fat diet. This experiment allowed them to find the specific brain cells that differed between the two groups of mice. In humans, these same neurons have been identified as influencing BMI, the body mass index, suggesting that a similar mechanism is operating in people. The second study used a technique that allowed the scientists to visualize the activity of individual neurons in living mice. The mice were fed, which usually decreases their motivation to eat. Then, both groups, the lean and the obese mice, were given access to a favorite treat, sugar cubes. The nerve cells from the obese mice were less active than those in the lean mice, showing that their BMI could influence their feeding behavior. The results are tantalizing, but the authors acknowledge that they didn't determine if the decreased brain activity in the obese mice would revert to a normal pattern if the mice lost weight. They concluded their report by stressing the need for further research, which could identify therapeutic targets for eating disorders and obesity. Acromancia mucinifola is a bacteria that evolved long ago to live in the oxygen-starved, nutrient-rich environment of the human intestinal tract. Its name, Acromancia mucinifola, refers to the microbe's favorite food, which is the gut's slippery, productive shell, mucin. You might know mucin as mucus, and by a few other choice names, which we could probably say on the air right now, but won't. So let's stick to the science here. Something about Acromancia mucinifola's ability to slurp up mucin has seemed to benefit health. For instance, higher gut levels of Acromancia mucinifola have been associated with lower levels of diabetes and obesity. Now, a new study demonstrates the microbe's possible benefit for reducing heart disease risk, but it might not be because the microbe eats mucus. As a food supplement, it seems the microbe works best when it is pasteurized, meaning scalded so that it's dead. 
We know this because researchers at Belgium's Louvain Drug Research Institute provided supplements of pasteurized Acromantia mucinifera to a group of human volunteers while they gave another group placebo supplements. After three months, the volunteers consuming the pasteurized Acromantia mucinifera had lower liver inflammation markers, and on average, they lost five pounds. Plenty is still unknown, but the result like this, well, you might want to keep your ears open for more news in the future about a tiny microbe known as Acromantia mucinifera. Last week, NASA announced the selection of the next New Frontiers class mission. Out of 12 missions proposed in 2017, NASA selected two for further study. One finalist was a mission to get and return to Earth a sample from Comet churyumov gracyamenko the comet studied by the Rosetta mission, which we have discussed on previous episodes of How on Earth. The other finalist was a mission called Dragonfly to study Saturn's moon Titan. I talked with Titan researcher Dr. Sarah Horst back in December about the Dragonfly mission. NASA announced last week that it selected the Dragonfly mission to Titan. That mission will send a drone to Titan to fly around and study the world that, like the Earth, has a thick atmosphere and lakes and seas. However, on Titan, those lakes are made of liquid methane rather than water, and the atmosphere is mostly nitrogen and methane. The compact car-sized drone could eventually fly more than 175 kilometers, nearly double the distance traveled to date by all Mars rovers combined. Dragonfly will be powered by a radioisotope thermoelectric generator, which converts the heat released by the decay of a radioactive material into electricity to charge its batteries. While there is enough sunlight on Titan's surface to see, there is not enough to use solar power efficiently. Visiting Titan excites scientists for many reasons, including being able to study prebiotic chemistry that might be similar to early conditions on Earth. The existence of liquid methane producing complex organic carbon-based molecules and possible liquid water under the surface provide necessary ingredients for life. Dragonfly is scheduled to launch in 2026 and arrive at Titan in 2034. Perhaps some of our teenage listeners out there will be working on the mission when it arrives at Titan. Standing there alone, the ship is waiting, all systems are go. Are you sure? Control is not convinced, but the computer has the evidence. No need to abort, the countdown starts. Watching in a trance, the crew is certain, nothing left to chance. All is working, trying to relax. Up in the capsule, sent me up a drink Jokes, major tone The count goes on This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker.
Today, in just a few hours, the sun will be blotted out of the sky. Parts of Earth will be plunged into darkness, perhaps indicating plague, war, and destruction. Or it will be a solar eclipse, but only if you happen to be in certain parts of South America. Not everyone has a chance to travel around the world to study the sun, but there are other ways to study it. Our guest today will talk about NASA's new mission to study the sun. That mission is called PUNCH. With me in the studio is Dr. Craig DeForest, a program director at the Boulder Office of Southwest Research Institute, where I also work. Dr. DeForest is the principal investigator, or the PI, of the PUNCH mission, and is here to tell us about the mission and what they expect to learn. Welcome to How on Earth, Craig. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the mission, there is a solar eclipse happening today. Can you tell us a little about that? Well, during a solar eclipse, the moon comes in front of the sun. We only observe the eclipses uh, through a chance coincidence that the moon has exactly the same apparent size, the angular size in the sky as the sun itself. If it were any farther, we wouldn't have total solar eclipses. But during that event, if you happen to be in the track of one, and it has to be totality, the entire sun is blotted out and we can see the sun's feathery outer atmosphere, the corona, illuminated by sunlight from below. What you're seeing when you go to an eclipse, and I, anyone listening to this show has probably seen a picture of an eclipse. If you're there, you can actually see sunlight reflected directly off of electrons in interplanetary space or in the sun's atmosphere directly into your eye. It's the most amazing thing and a spectacular sight. And you can only see this during eclipse because the bright part of the sun, that the disk of the sun is temporarily, for maybe a couple minutes, blocked by the moon. That's exactly Occulted right. by the moon. So the corona is there all the time. It's the brightest thing in the sky, brighter than the full moon. It's larger than the constellation Orion. It's enormous. And it's there every day. It's just that it's completely washed out by the bright sunlight itself. It's trying to see something fate when you're staring at a light bulb. Mm-hmm. It is a transformative experience, and I encourage everyone who missed the last eclipse in the U.S. to look forward to the next one that's going to come through Carbondale, Illinois, in a different direction. They're a lucky town. They'll get two eclipses in the space of not very many years. Those are solar eclipses, but as I said, there are other ways to study the sun, and you happen to know about a few. You are the principal investigator for the PUNCH mission. So what does PUNCH stand for, and what is the mission? So PUNCH stands for the polarimeter to unify the corona and heliosphere. And so polarimeter... So there are many words in there you're going to have, we'll have to learn about today. <laughs> so a polarimeter is just a camera that senses polarized light. And what we're doing is imaging the outer edges of the sun's corona and how they transition into the solar wind that fills interplanetary space in our solar system. So the sun is constantly streaming material outward at supersonic rates that blows a bubble in interstellar space, surrounds the Earth and the other planets, uh, and forms what we might call empty space that isn't really all that empty. It has tens of atoms per cubic centimeter Ooh. <laughs> compared to, <laughs> uh, what, 10 to the 20 or so That's per cubic so centimeter here. 
So it's very tenuous, but it does exist. In fact, the material is a mixture of ions and electrons. It's so hot that atoms themselves can't exist. They're torn mm -hmm. apart by collisions in the solar atmosphere. But as the material streams out, the electrons and ions don't hit each other anymore. The electrons are free in interplanetary space, and they reflect sunlight the same way they do in the corona, right. but very tenuously. So you can see large clouds of material leaving the sun all the time if you look with the right eyes. So Punch has the right eyes to look at the corona and I guess this transition from the corona to the heliosphere. Solar wind or heliosphere. Solar wind. Yes. How does Punch do that? The trick is there's no trick. <laughs> you, you just have to put a sensitive white light camera in space so it's above the glare of the atmosphere and put a suitable piece of metal between the camera and the sun to block out the sunlight. So Punch comprises uh, one virtual camera, although it's actually four separate physical cameras hmm. that are deeply baffled behind dark veins of metal that block out the sunlight and allow us to view the star field with exquisite sensitivity. How exquisite? Well, the brightest objects we're looking at with punch are about a thousand times fainter than the Milky Way in the sky. And of course, the spacecraft have to view that against the eternal noontime of outer space. Right. And so you said there's one of the instruments that blocks out the sun. So this is kind of like creating your own solar eclipse. That's right. So punch is a wider, it's, it's essentially a very wide field coronagraph. Now, coronagraphs have been known for about 100 years, more or less. Uh, and the idea of a coronagraph is you take an ordinary camera, you put it behind some kind of a culture that blocks out the sun itself, and that allows you to produce an artificial eclipse that can be done on the ground, but not as effectively as in outer space because of the glare of the atmosphere itself. So we put coronagraphs generally into space. Punch contains one of those that views from about a degree away from the sun out to about uh, three and a half degrees, four degrees from the sun. And the sun itself is about half a degree. That's right. For scale. That's right. So a degree, remember, is is the size of your thumb held at arm's length. If you if you make a thumbs up like you're hitchhiking and you hold it at arm's length, the apparent size of your thumbnail is about a degree. So this is not a particularly sharp telescope or a particularly broad camera sort of the same field of view as a telephoto camera on the earth. So polarimeter, explain what that is and what's special about punch in this case. So I'm going to diverge a little bit and mention that punch has four cameras. Ah, yes. So, so we have one, one instrument is the coronagraph or one camera is the coronagraph, but we want to look at a really wide field and there's a ready great planet in the way. Uh, and so <laughs> we could either go into outer, deep outer space away from the Earth and have a single wide field camera, or we could split our instrument up into multiple spacecraft and spread it out around the Earth so that every direction we want to look is up for one of them. And that's, in fact, what we do. So we have a coronagraph and we have three separate wide field imagers that merge together to make one extremely wide field of view. And these are all orbiting in low Earth orbit. They're in low Earth orbit, uh, about 350, 400 miles up. And they're orbiting around the terminator, the sunrise sunset line. So remember, in orbit, Sunrise isn't a time, it's a place. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But each of these, uh, as you, you asked, uh, measures polarization. And the idea is, if you've ever used 
polarized glasses, you know they cut down glare. Well, how do they do that? Most things that scatter sunlight also polarize it. And so the dashboard of your car polarizes the glare that comes reflecting off it. And your, mm. your polarized glasses are designed to block that glare specifically. Likewise, uh, if you look at the sky through polarized glasses, you'll see that parts of it are darker than others. And that depends on which way the glasses are tipped. <laughs> so that same type of effect polarizes the light being reflected off these electrons. And by polarizing, it's basically giving the light a particular direction so that if you have polarized glasses that are perpendicular to that direction, it can block out that scattered glare. That's exactly right. So uh, light is an electromagnetic wave. So there's an electric field that oscillates back and forth. And it, in general, it sort of jiggles around in all directions as the light comes by. But in polarized light, it jiggles back and forth in one particular direction. Right. So the degree of polarization, just how polarized the light is that we see with punch, will tell us the angle that that light was scattered. From that, for every single point in the image, we can solve the triangle that includes the sun, the earth, and whatever it is we're looking at. From that, we can determine exactly the structure of the stuff we're looking at in three dimensions. So Punch is not just a 2D imager, it's actually a three-dimensional imager. So you're going to get 3D image of the corona and the kickoff of the solar wind area. That's right. Up until now, people have studied the solar wind differently than we study the sun. There are two aspects of the same system, but we measure the solar wind by sampling it. We fly a spacecraft out into the flow, and then we sample the material and the magnetic field and so forth that passes over the spacecraft. We study the sun through telescopes and cameras that view the atmosphere of the sun or the structure of the surface, but it's remote sensing. And so we're at a really interesting time now where these two separate fields of solar wind physics and solar physics are beginning to merge. NASA is already flying the Parker Solar Probe through the corona itself. So we're bringing solar wind physics into the corona. What Punch will do with slightly less effort, though it certainly is a challenge, is bring solar physics out to the solar wind by allowing us to study the solar wind with the same kinds of tools we've used for 100 years to study the corona. What do we get here on Earth from learning about this? The practical application of this work is we're trying to understand space weather. We're, uh, the sun periodically throws out large disturbances that are usually coupled with mixed clouds of material and magnetic field called CMEs, coronal mass ejections. And these cause aurora and, and other space weather effects near the Earth. And predicting those effects is surprisingly important in a technological society. So we're trying to be able to predict space weather. And from that practical aspect, Punch is the first dedicated space weather satellite. That is to say, we will track these disturbances in 3D the same way that a geosynchronous satellite tracks hurricanes as they cross the ocean. So I can look up my space weather report uh, someday when uh, Punch is out there. Well, Punch <laughs> is a scientific mission, so we don't actually deliver results in a timely enough manner to predict, but we're learning how to predict. This is important because, as you, you said, for a technological society, there can be issues. Uh, one example was the Carrington event, which was 1859, before we had GPS satellites and all sorts of things like that. Can you tell us a little about that event and just that as an example, why this knowledge is important? So the Carrington event involves uh, a fellow named Carrington in England who was a solar physicist. Everybody who was doing solar physics was an amateur at that time. He had set up a brand new telescope 
with a solar filter and went to look at the sun for the first time and happened to see the largest solar flare on record. There was no film, so he ran inside to get someone else to look through the eyepiece. By the time he came back, it was already fading. And two days later, it was a day and a half later, uh, there was tremendous aurora that swept across all of the civilized uh, nations on Earth who could record it, presumably all the other ones too. But there were other related effects. The changing magnetic field from the impact of that storm on the Earth uh, induced currents in every long wire that crossed a continent at that time. And that, well, in 1859, we had a telegraph system. And several telegraph stations caught fire. Much of the equipment melted. Uh, it was a big surprise to the people there. And it was sort of the, the first sign that things on that happen on the sun can affect the earth as little as a day later. And these days, such an event could be even more disastrous because of all our dependence on power grids, satellites, things like that. The, the effects range from effects on astronauts and all of our satellite infrastructure to things on the ground like power grids, corrosion events, and long-distance pipelines. Uh, during the Cold War, there were events where Solar storms may have caused false alarms for our early warning system for nuclear war. These are things we want to keep an yes, eye on. Yes, indeed. This is really interesting science coming out of Punch, and we're looking forward to it. It just got selected. So what do you have to do now between, hooray, we got it, to launch and beyond. Well, the way these programs work is there's a competitive downselect. So we've already been working very hard on Punch for four years, uh, and we only just got selected for flight by NASA. There's a two-stage proposal process where lots of proposals come into the hopper, if you will, for step one. A few of them are selected for detailed study. NASA funds a detailed study, which in this case lasted about a year and a half. And of those, uh, a smaller number are selected for actual flight. So we've been working hard at this already, but the real development of the spacecraft is still ahead of us. We have a detailed concept study, and now we get into the hard work of actually building and testing the materials and turning them into spacecraft. So we're aiming to launch in late 22 or early 23. We have about uh, two and a half years ahead of us. And how long should, should the mission last? Uh, the nominal mission is two years, uh, but nothing in the orbit or the spacecraft design precludes a longer mission, should things be going well. Well, we hope things will be going well. One quick question. Where will the mission operations be? The mission will be operated from right here in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, if people wanted to learn more about Punch, find out more, where could they go? Well, we're still setting up our website, but there is a Punch website. Uh, we, there's a Wikipedia page someone wrote, and you can visit that. That contains links to the official mission website, which will be populated in more detail in the coming months. Excellent. Well, thank you for being on the show, Craig, and we hope to have you back on to uh, update us on all things Punchy. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Craig DeForest from Southwest Research Institute, the principal investigator of the PUNCH mission to study the connection between the sun's corona and the heliosphere. That's 
that's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett, and particularly Shelley Schlender for writing a headline to make me repeatedly say Acromancia Mucinophila, which sounds like a spell taught at Hogwarts. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Peter Schilling. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.